Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We have been protesting. Colin Kaepernick protested. Athletes joined them. They were demonized. I protested the NBA. I was called crazy for saying we needed better mental health policies. And here we have a, a situation that involves both, hand in hand. Mental health, this guy was a sociopath. You could see it in his eyes, hook, hook line, and sinker. And, and, you know, race. And so when those things are mocked in open conversation and open dialogue on a daily, weekly, yearly basis, how could any of us be surprised that these people have resorted to these methods? That's, that's almost satirical. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to somebody who's been at the heart of the protests in the Twin Cities against the racist murder of George Floyd. I'm talking about former NBA player Royce White. We're going to speak to Royce about his experiences in the streets of the Twin Cities. Also, I've got some choice words about the importance of athletes speaking out at this particular moment uh, because of its ability to puncture white privilege and... I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards, Kaepernick watching more, but first, Royce White. Minneapolis, the whole world is watching. I mean, you're on the ground. What are you seeing, Royce? Yeah, well, I mean, first and foremost, um, I see the pain of people that have been through this before, and it's not not so much about what's going on here and now and i think the other side of the argument wants to always pigeonhole these issues into the present which allows them to ignore the history and and not like they're trying to play out like make out like the history doesn't exist but they want to ignore the significance of the history and and you know in a sort of ironic way in, in my own past and my own advocacy up until this point the psychological aspect of history, the psychological um, revving up of trauma and anger and, and pain and emotion and sadness and despair and anxiety and fear. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm just, I'm just here right on ground zero 
and uh, it, it seems like that's still taking place. Wow. And I feel like this is something that you've um, you predicted even years ago when you talked about the amount of trauma that really does exist. I think you said we need a Marshall Plan in this country to deal with the trauma that uh, particularly poor people, black people have been through in this country. And you're seeing that play out now, aren't you? Yeah, well, I mean, I think under underneath the ethic that I was trying to point out, you know, earlier in, in my career uh, was the, the psychological leads us to the philosophical. And in the philosophical, we're, you know, bankrupt <laughs> nearly. And, and for example, you know, a moment like this points out who all the charlatans are, right? It points out who all the charlatans are. And, you know, even, even as I continue to listen to a conversation about President Trump, I often wonder, like, when a situation like this arises, why none of these political minds just have the, you know, the the competence to point out the word sovereignty and, and how we have a president that ran on sovereignty, the sovereignty of a nation, but the, the hierarchical principle is that people need sovereignty, communities need sovereignty, uh, you know, individuals need sovereignty, and, and it, it's a right-wing ethic that, that the individual and that, that communities police themselves. But it seems to be clear that that when we talk about sovereignty or when he talks about sovereignty or when Bannon talks about sovereignty, they're certainly not talking about the sovereignty of, of black communities. And, and so if we're going to, you know, set a marker of where Donald Trump's racism should be, I don't think it should be some of these these Twitter dog whistles. I think it should be plain facts like that. Like, Why is sovereignty not a real thing when it comes to black communities, unless you still don't see black communities as as a, as a you know a fabric of of humanity so yeah not more like seeing them as as, as a colony within it, to use uh the boys's phrase um well and i think i think he really sees us as as an enemy you know I, and, and this isn't just him i think the state views black communities as as the enemy i mean you know they're they're for the life of me i i can't i can't come to grips with why you know, Israeli special forces train a lot of these, mm-hmm. these police departments and, and counterterrorism, uh, you know, tactics. I can't come to grips with, with why they are, are um, as aggressive as they are, why they're, they're heavy uh, veteran presence, right, in, in, amongst their ranks. Um, don't come into question around the, the mental health crisis that all, we know already exists in the veteran ranks. I mean, it's, it's, almost, it's almost laughable, you know, and I think when you see people looting and, and burning stuff to the ground um, and, and, you know, uh, stealing things out of stores, yeah, there's some people that just are looking to get ahead and, and, and looking to use the crisis as an opportunity to, to fatten their pocket. Yeah, of course. You know, we, we, we know that that's the case. And, and would I vote for that? Absolutely not. You know, that's why we held a peaceful protest that the mainstream media failed to cover, but we're going to be out there again. Um, but But my point is that when I look at the looting, I see a, a crisis of sympathy, right? Because for me, it's like, if you understand that, that psychological, if you understand that history of human beings, you understand that this isn't, this isn't the present that they're dealing with in their anger. This is the state becoming a mockery while still trying to maintain its overextended reach. 
mm-hmm. wouldn't be so bad if the state overextended its reach if it wasn't a mockery. It's a mockery to, to, to bring veterans home and say, because we can't take care of you properly with sympathy, with compassion, um, we're going to put, you know, remilitarize you, let's say, in, in our communities. It's, 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 almost, it's almost like a pan- politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's real talk. Um, I wanted to ask you what your first reaction was when, when you saw the, the George Floyd video, the video of, of the murder of George Floyd, and if, if you thought that we would get to this point. Yeah, so the first thing that came to my mind um, was, was, here we go again. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have a few people around me that, that understand my anxiety, but they also understand my anger and they also understand my position in the community. So, you know, they immediately told me, don't watch it, right? Like that, when, when it first hit, people were saying, don't watch it. You know, you, you don't need to watch that right now. Um, there are a lot of other things going on in our in our world right now, and and you know I'm I'm spread in a couple of different places already, and that'll come you know shortly. But um, I couldn't help but watch it. I think as a black man, you can't help but go to it and, and see what you know what your destiny could become. And so when I finally got a chance to watch it, I thought for sure it was time to go back and revisit the Black Panthers and their philosophy um, and, and the, the constitutional right of, of, of militias. And um, I do think that this is the worst video we've seen yet. Um, and, and I was here for, for the Philando Castile murder. And that would hurt, you know, that would hurt his daughter being there, his wife being, uh, his girlfriend being there, his girlfriend being in the back seat when she looked back and, and saw or, or felt like he was dead and, and crying out and the daughter you know, having to console her, that was a bad one. But there's something different about having your face pressed into the concrete and having somebody just sit there with, with this, you know, this kind of emotionless, sociopathic face as he just squeezes the life out of you. You know, it, it's a little different. So when I, when I saw that, the first thing that came to my mind really was, why, why are all these people standing by and, and allowing this? And, and it, it, it just dawned on me again that, like, the communities have no sovereignty, and they don't even believe in an ethic of sovereignty. They don't believe that they should be able to stop a police officer from murdering uh, a civilian. And so I, I knew that it was – I knew that it should be time to, to move into protest. I didn't think we would get here this fast. When I found out that Stephen Jackson and this, you know, this man were closely related and tied – and that he felt like he was a brother to him. Stephen Jackson being a brother to me, I was ashamed to have to, you know, to know that I would have to welcome Stephen Jackson to Minnesota, which you and I, you know, talk highly of. We, we have roots here. I, mean, I was born and raised here. Family is, is mm-hmm. as old as they come here. Um, I was ashamed I had to welcome him here under those circumstances, but I knew it was time to go. And, and then when I watched the video again, after, after realizing the connection, um, I couldn't help but see the resemblance. And, and then that, that sent me into into a rage. Yeah. And you, you mentioned something about, um, this, about your position in the community and what's not being covered. I mean, I, I've been following it. I wanted to you tell my audience about the demonstration that you called, the demands that you put forward for that demonstration, and then how it swelled in size as you started to, to, to kick off. 
Yeah, so I think the athletes um, of any community are perfectly positioned to lead multicultural initiatives because we have to deal with that dynamic in our in our passion, in our passion work, right, in our everyday work, um, and, and the consequences of bringing you know racist ideologies into the athletic part. I'm not talking about the managerial part or the or the commercial part, but in the in the athletic. Being a loser, right? Uh, so, you know, I, I put a message out to some of my athlete friends here from the community, young and old, and said we have to go to the front lines. If if the people of Minnesota are going to be tear gassed, if they're going to be maced, if they're going to be, you know, shot with rubber bullets, if they're going to have flashbangs thrown uh, in their midst indiscriminately, we need to be on those front lines because the state the state can't be allowed to think that they can benefit from you know, building a stadium that could employ, you know, that, that host the Vikings, which could employ a number of my ex-NFL football friends and allow this to happen and, and, and not think that we're going to stand on that front line and, and take that same wrath and show the world that we will take the same wrath as the people. Um, and, and the response to that call was incredible. I mean, I had no idea that they would be even uh, agreeable with, with doing something like this. And we expected about 50 people, you know, we knew the athletes had agreed. Everybody was on board there. And, and as we, you know, uh, started to gather outside of U.S. Bank Stadium, you know, we just saw swells of people that certainly didn't look like athletes, right? And, and they just kept coming in waves and waves and waves. And, uh, you know, we even left to take off the march a little bit early. We had more energy. We had more passion. We had the desire to keep going. And, you know, by, by the time it was all said and done, you know, it, we, we think that there was upwards of 10,000 people there, you know, at least 8,000, 8,500 people with us. You know, we, uh, we stopped uh, two bridges, two historic bridges, the Hennepin and the, and the 35W, and, uh, and the Federal Highway, the, the beginning of 35W. And we did it all peacefully, and there wasn't one fight, there wasn't one fire, there wasn't one arrest. And there's a reason why that isn't being covered. And, and we would like to know why, as Minnesotans, we would like to know why a president that the liberal media clearly, clearly hates, with good reason, uh, why they continue to, to stump the flame uh, of the violence that's happened on South Minneapolis when we've put together a demonstration that's, that was bigger than, than anyone that's happened yet on South Minneapolis in terms of sheer size. And, and we got very minimal coverage from the liberal media. Mm-hmm. Well, what's your analysis of that? You know, I, I mean, I think people are, are, you know, they're, they're quick to, they're quick to the flame, you know, moth to the flame. I yeah. guess it doesn't sell. I guess, I guess peaceful protest doesn't sell. And we, we know that we know that, um, because when these instances happen, we always see and hear, uh, uh, the most violent of, of, you know, manifestate, you know, manifesting protests. And, and to me, it, it hurts me, and, and I spoke with a, a few reporters yesterday, I said it hurts me for us to act like we're not duplicitous at every turn, that the contradiction is not at every turn, because we actually haven't propped up peaceful protests in much of this coverage at large. But the one peaceful protest that we did prop up clearly had everything to gain. And it hurts me that we allow these improper questions to come into the conversation with regard to his position morally you know little petty things like 
you know, him being adopted by two white parents and living in Wisconsin. If you think that you could be a black man adopted to a white family and live in Wisconsin and not face racism, that's because you've never been to Wisconsin. Exactly. Right? You never drove through Wisconsin as a black man and known that, that I better be five miles per hour under the speed limit or else we don't know what's going to happen. Right. We know that as Minnesotans traveling back to and from the East Coast on the road or, or further in the Midwest. So we let those questions be posed and we gave them validity. And I think to go back to my, my point about the Panthers and to tie it into the, the, the rioters, so they call them, or, you know, the looters, is that the state, the state wants to play the game in a certain spot. And, and their, their corporate, you know, their corporate CEOs, you could say, because America's a corporation, and then their corporations are their CEOs, you could say. These CEOs want to play the game in a certain spot. And I can't say that I am not in appreciation of the courage for the people to say, no, we're not going to play the game in the spot where you already rigged it. Mm-hmm. We're not going to play the game in that spot. Now, I say that as a person who has been at the head of a peaceful protest, period. And, and we will continue to do it that way. And I think protest, a, a protest should be just that. Um, but I'm not here to say that that's the only way to fight this oppression because we have been protesting. We have been protesting. Colin Kaepernick protested. Athletes joined them. They were demonized. I protested the NBA. I was called crazy for saying we needed better mental health policies. And here we have a, a situation that involves both, hand-in-hand, hand. mental health. This guy was a sociopath. You could see it in his eyes, hook, hook line, and sinker, you know, and, 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 you know, race. And so when those things are mocked in open conversation and open dialogue on a daily, weekly, yearly basis, how could any of us be surprised that these people have resorted to these methods? That's, that's almost satirical. You're not shocked. And the, the last thing I'll say about that is, the reason why I have a sympathy for, for the looting aspect of, of this, you know, this whole situation, the, the civil disobedience of that order, is because I understand the alternative perspective and I understand the alternative uh, um, energy. And, and they, they want to criticize where they can because they know that that's exactly where they can criticize on the board. But you and I both know that they don't want to refine political strategy amongst those people. Because a, a, a refined political strategy from the looting and burning and stealing is open carry for the black and brown and other minority communities. And we all know that white America doesn't want those rioters to start to show up in the open carry fashion that the right wing does. Those were the Black Panthers and they killed them. And when I say they killed them, that's not a conspiracy. They went in the cover of the night and killed key members of the Black Panthers. So we have to ask ourselves why, and we have to ask ourselves in situations like this, maybe we do evolve our political, our political strategy. Maybe we do refine our civil disobedience. Maybe we do show up like the Black Panthers did, and maybe we make them kill us again, and maybe we have to be ready for that. You know, um, I, I do need to ask you, Royce, just because, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm good. Yeah, because um, you're on the ground there. What, what do you say to, because there are all these news reports that, you know, the the looting in um, Minneapolis is being done by, quote unquote, outside agitators. What, what do you say to that when people say, well, it's people outside the community who are 
causing all the trouble, quote unquote. Like what 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 are you seeing on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I mean, all of that stuff. It, it it it's just mind boggling that a side of the aisle that would be quick to denote anything that is more emotion based and not fact based would start to lob conspiracy theories of that nature. Like, uh, you know, that that stuff sounds like fairy tales to me. I know that our police are trained by by par- in, in paramilitary methods by Israeli, you know, special mm-hmm. forces. That's not a conspiracy theory. Oh, They're a- saying that cartels cartels are coming up from Mexico or wherever these cartels are coming from. Chicago, I don't know. And, and these people are, you know, I don't know, in some type of, you know, uh, coordinated system to agitate unrest. I'll tell you one thing. They didn't show up at our 10,000 person march across the city. Mm-hmm. So I, I, start to, I start to question that, you know, I start to go, you know, where are these people even, you know, where is the evidence that those reports are even are even accurate, that those instances are even happening? The, the people who would do those type of things have always been here. If you're black and you live in Minnesota, we have always known that there is a huge KKK presence here. We have always believed and known that there is a huge KKK presence in the union of the police department. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so those things are what I'm looking at. You know, those are the areas I'm looking at. Why are we, why are our police over unionized? Let's start there. I don't want to know fairy tales about, about conquistadors from, from New Zealand, you know, coming for an opportune political fire. I don't, I don't want to hear about that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, so, I mean, cause it's crazy how that's, how they've used that outside agitator narrative to try to change the narrative of what's happening in, in Minneapolis to change and in other cities around the country to change it from people are out here because they're angry about a police murder and turning it into, Oh, you know, it's, it's really these outside agitators as a way. Well, and to- it's also, it's also another way. It's, it's also, it's also another way for them to sort of protect themselves as, you know, being, you know, uh, state, officials right so the mayor and then and then the governor and 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 these people want to be able to say oh it's not minnesotans and and we kind of just saw a similar uh, a political dynamic with the coronavirus pandemic right is that that every state is trying to say you know that's not us they're trying to protect their borders and and there's so there was already a conversation about sovereignty that was thrown in our face but those type of things are i'm not even going to go there on those issues like no, there have always been people in Minnesota that, that would come to the call of action of agitation. They didn't need to come from somewhere else. Mm. No, that's real talk right there. So I, and I, you've been so generous with your time. I want to ask you, though, um, what is, what's, is there anything else that we're missing? Uh, you know, people like myself who are looking at what's happening in Minneapolis from, from a place like D.C. I mean, obviously, we've got our own protests here, but you are at, at ground zero of all of this. Like, what... What are we missing? Um, you know, I think I think that a lot of people don't really aren't, aren't even a lot of people aren't even really familiar with Minnesota mm-hmm. um, and, and what the dynamic is here. And as soon as I heard that the protests had started, I knew that the the multicultural fabric of this community was both going to be a positive, but it was also going to make it combustible because you know, one hand doesn't know what the other is doing. We have a heavy Latino community. We have a heavy uh, Somali immigrant community. We have a heavy Hmong immigrant community. 
right? We have our black community. We have our, our, our white liberal community. We have a, a heavy LGBTQ community, right? So there's all of these different interests and they're probably not communicating uh, in, in, a, in a cohesive and, and unified way. Um, and, and so that's how you probably get, you know, different manifestations of protest right there on the ground in real time. But I think ultimately what, what people need to see is that even in a place like Minnesota, that I've always promoted as a great place to live, comparatively to other places in the country, still at bottom faces the same fundamental questions we've been facing in this country for 400 years. Mm. Yeah, that whole Minnesota nice thing only goes so far. Well, and you know, the, 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 and the YouTube uh, account Anonymous put out a video that was very disturbing. You know, we have to go back and, and fact check it, but on the face of it, the information was very disturbing about just where Minnesota ranks in police killings. And, and so if you think about the, the mainstream media or the Minnesota local media, uh, the cops and the chief police and the mayor and all of these people protecting their own interests to say that the police department in, in Minneapolis isn't so bad, um, starts, to, starts to iron out the theories about the KKK presence in, in the police force here. Um, and, and, and so it's like 193 killings in Minnesota. Um, you know, we rank way higher than anyone would assume, than I would have even assumed. Um, and, and, you know, you have these situations where there was no, there was no witness left to say how the killing happened. And us as black men in this country, we know that that's the dynamic. We know that if a cop gets behind you and you're on a back road, you're in trouble. <laughs> Right. There, there's an innate sort of sort of an alarm system there that I'd rather get pulled over on the highway, not in some instances, but in a highway, you know, in front of a target. I'd rather get pulled over where some people are and the, the people being there and the consequences of people being there serves as a buffer for this this underlying racist, uh, you know, racist, racist uh, maliciousness. Right. And, and so when I when I looked at looked at that, I thought to myself, I need to revisit how I feel about Minnesota. I need to revisit how I feel. And, and that also sprung me into action to say, well, we can't let Minnesota get off so easy with our, you know, with, with our standards of quality of life here and the quality of living, because this is completely unacceptable. This person wasn't even from here. We have to be way better stewards of people that talking about people who aren't from here. This guy wasn't from here. And our state was a poor steward of his experience in this community. And now he's lost, and, and, and now we have, you know, anarchy across the country, it looks like. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Minnesota, for Minnesota, to, I've always said Minnesota would be a place where a great cultural evolution would come from in America. And maybe that, that does come from this. But right now it's produced mass turmoil, and I'm ashamed of that. You know, and I'm, I'm going to be out there, and we're going to be out there until we feel like we've done something that, that's restored Minnesota's honor. Mm. And do you think, um, I mean, being on the ground, I mean, you know, like typically these kinds of uprisings, they last a few days, they last a week. I mean, do you see an end game here or do you just see like the, the, the military police just coming in and crushing people's spirit to get out in the streets and protest? I mean, wh where does this end? Do you think? You know, um, I, I'd be, I'd, I'd be, dishonest if I didn't say that 
I see the effect of the police already starting to weigh in the spirit, you know, and that's another reason why the athletes got involved is to, to try and keep the momentum going. Um, you know, it's, it's tough, man. I mean, how can you, the first night, and, and we're covering the entire situation on the ground, we're coming out with a, a series in the next 48 hours called on the ground that, that basically takes you through, you know, this thing from, from the, the first hour. And so to go down to the protest where people were burning, where people were looting, where people were stealing, uh, to watch those protests from the morning into the evening showed me something that I think the world hasn't seen. And we're going to try and show that when these protests start, they were peaceful. And the Minneapolis Police Department decided indiscriminately, individually, on a whim, to mace, to tear gas, to shoot with, you know, uh, the rubber bullets, to throw the flashbangs, um, to push the line of the people. They have no right to push the line of the people. They work for the people. So the, the protest, the protest, the, the way the protest has been depicted, even for the people who are looting, is disingenuous. You know, I, I would invite anybody to come to a protest in a, in a rightful manner, in a rightful moral position, because that's what it is, and get you know, tear gassed and you know, basically tortured for 10 hours straight and, and see would you be ready to throw a water bottle. And then they throw a water bottle, and then the, the cops just rain down more of the same. And then so you know, anybody who could see the natural escalation of, of civil disobedience would then put themselves in a the position to say, okay, well, we can't use bullets. We can't use guns because then it would be civil war, not civil disobedience. So what should we use? The automatic answer is fire. So the fact that the, 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 fact that the mainstream media is acting so shocked about the, the fire and, and turn it into like this demonic possessed political act, fire is the natural, the, 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 the obvious next escalation of civil disobedience, right? It's, it's a, a common people that is, that lacks weapons, fire would be the thing they go to. So the fact that the mainstream media is treating the fires and the burning as if it's like this demonic plague, you know, like it's possessed by the devil seems disingenuous to me. No, fire has always been, you know, the, the, the way that common folk or poor folk or people who didn't have sophisticated weaponry started to show the state and the people who did have weaponry that this is a serious fight that you're in, you know, and they burned 10, 15 buildings. Okay, you know, don't make it seem like they swept through the entire city. I was just downtown Minneapolis today. There was a, it's a ghost town. Not one building or a restaurant or a hotel downtown Minneapolis has been burned. And, and when that happens, then you can come back to me and say, hey, these people just burned a 20-story a, a hotel down. It's like, okay, they burned an Arby's. It's like, man, mm-hmm. if an Arby's has more value in this country then George Floyd's life, we are destined to have this continue to happen. Wow. Well, Royce, I understand you have a demonstration today. Um, a the 10K march, no bail, uh, and meeting at US Bank Stadium. And I just want to be safe, okay? Yeah, no doubt, man. We're we're uh we're trying to be prayed up. We know there's a lot of bad intentions out there. We, we're coming to exercise our, you know, uh, our First Amendment, 
the same way that the other side of the aisle would, the same way that anybody in this country has a right to do. And, and we believe in that right. And we're coming to exercise that. And we would hope that people wouldn't undermine that by trying to escalate it with something violent or something more malicious. We got kids out there. We got, you know, elderly people out there um, that just want their voice heard, that just want fair justice. They want a, a fair trial. They want, you know, fair policing. They want a fair judicial process. So. Mm-hmm. Royce, man, I, I really do appreciate you making the time. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. I appreciate you too. Be well. Be well, man. Talk soon. Please. That was Royce White, ladies and gents. We'll be back right after this. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you so much, Royce. Now, I've got some choice words that I want to share with you. The question often asked is, what happened? What happened to the kneeling protests against police violence that were staged during the national anthem by Colin Kaepernick and so many others? What happened to black athletes centering themselves as critical voices of dissent? Were they stifled by Trump? Have they been silenced by the fear that they could be Kaepernicked and denied a right to make a living? Everyone has theories on the state of athletic political consciousness, but my answer has always been the same. This country is a pressure cooker of racist police violence, and it would just take one incident, probably caught on tape, to see athletes speaking out once again. In other words, the question of whether athletes would make themselves heard would be determined by the police. If they continued with their racist, violent ways, there would be a reaction. We're certainly seeing one right now following the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. It's not taking a knee, because in the time of a pandemic that has canceled games, you're not going to see people taking a knee. But silence for many is clearly not an option. Athletes have taken to social media to express their rage, and even some of the typical bigoted scolds on the sports media landscape have remained mum. This eruption of athletic anger matters, because these athletes have massive followings of white fans who will now have to reckon with Floyd's murder. These athletes are puncturing the bubble that white people have the luxury of living in, a bubble in which they do not feel fear when they see a police officer. Athletes have a unique ability to reach those people, which is exactly why since the days of Jack Johnson over a century ago, their platform has been policed so mercilessly. One example is former NBA player Steven Jackson. Captain Jack knew Floyd and bore a striking resemblance to the man. He and Floyd called each other twin. Jackson spoke out in a series of posts, and one saying, either you side with what's right or you condone what's wrong. You can't love me and not love my people. He's also been in the Twin Cities, uh, where these protests have been raging most hotly. Many others, including Kaepernick and LeBron James, shared a widely circulated photo of the now fired, now arrested Derek Chauvin on one knee in the process of killing George Floyd counterposed with Kaepernick peacefully protesting, also of course on one knee. 
James also posted a story on Instagram about Floyd's murder with the caption, We are hunted. Hall of Fame WNBA player Lisa Leslie weighed in, tweeting, If anybody that follows me is not outraged about these senseless attacks on black men, please stop following me. If your spirit is not disturbed, please stop following me. This inflicted pain, but it will never inflict fear. Sorry, we're not made like that. Also of note was J.J. Watt of the Houston Texans, who said in a press conference, I've seen the video and I think it's disgusting. I think that there's no explanation. I think it needs to be addressed strongly, obviously. Then there is Tyrone Ty Carter, a retired NFL player and Super Bowl champion, who was at the front lines of the Minneapolis protests slash police riot. As Professor Lewis Moore pointed out to me, this is a major break from the role black athletes have played in the past when they were used to quiet down protests. Instead, there was Ty Carter saying, no justice, no peace. And I gotta mention Carl uh, Anthony Towns, who just lost his mother to COVID, who of course plays for the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves, and Carl Anthony Towns being out there at the protests as well, face mask on. It's unknown whether their anguish will break through the white bubble. We are living in highly polarized times. Income inequality has never been worse. And the powers that be, most specifically a certain allegedly billionaire president, have ruthlessly used racism to keep people divided while the rich loot this country and continue the greatest transfer of wealth the world has ever seen without a coup or revolution. It's not just the white folks who bring automatic weapons to state capitol buildings while police yawn. It's the white people who turn a blind eye and confuse being a non-racist with being an anti-racist. I agree with the argument that it is the responsibility of white people to educate and confront other white people on their bigotry. But if athletes can move the needle a fraction towards anti-racism, that is critical work. And it should be utilized and treasured. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to white athletes speaking out against racism. I mentioned J.J. Watt. Um, Also, quarterbacks Carson Wentz and Joe Burrow. uh, Washington Nationals pitcher. Uh, Sean Doolittle with an incredible statement. Zach Ertz, Julie Ertz. Uh, Julie Ertz, of course, is on the women's uh, World Cup national team soccer. Um, Zach Ertz, tight end for the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, All of these statements have mattered. I mean, more that I'm not even remembering right now as I speak to you, but you actually have had some white athletes speak out against um, racism and police violence, which is not something that you normally see. And I think it's something that we have to really see the importance of because it's like a page has been turned. 
because it's not something you normally see in the world of sports. And I feel like we're in a new era where a lot of these white athletes are, are understanding that you can't talk about team and you can't talk about family and ignore the fact that some members of your quote unquote family are in absolute despair uh, because of the murders of George Floyd, the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, the murders of Breonna Taylor. So just stand up award to those white athletes. Just sit your ass down award. Sit your ass down. Goes to the sport that's produced the fewest number of athletes who have spoken out about this, and that's baseball players. Some have, like Sean Doolittle, Dexter Fowler, uh, Yasiel Puig put out a tweet. Uh, but I'm just so disgusted with baseball, which is a sport that bathes in the memory of Jackie Robinson every year, uh, doesn't speak out more. They always talk about Jackie Robinson. They always bathe themselves in his legacy, but they have nothing to say when incidents like this take place. And I'm acutely sensitive to this because I just interviewed for like an hour and a half Bruce Maxwell for this book I'm writing called The Kaepernick Effect about people who've taken a knee. If you don't remember Bruce Maxwell, uh, he was the Oakland A's catcher, the only uh, Major League Baseball player who's taken a knee during the anthem. And he was quickly blackballed by Major League Baseball. Uh, he is not, you know, despite the fact that he was, you know, raking, that means hitting really well. And he was a great catcher for the A's. He was an up-and-comer. They got rid of him, and nobody in baseball had his back. And it's a distressing story. We all know about Colin Kaepernick and the, the collusion against him, but we don't talk about Bruce Maxwell, and maybe we should. So solidarity with Bruce Maxwell, and just sit your ass down to the world of baseball, which profits off of Jackie Robinson and tends to be way too silent in these other matters. And now it's time for Kaepernick Watch, and we have a lot of Kaepernick Watch this week. Uh, first and foremost, you know, everybody's referencing Colin Kaepernick, from politicians to senators to obviously athletes, um, and pointing out the fact that you know, Colin Kaepernick protested peacefully against police violence and was excoriated for it. He lost his job. He had tons of death threats. And that wasn't good enough, protesting peacefully. And now people are not protesting peacefully. And, and people are saying, oh, why can't people protest peacefully? People like Mike Pence, people like Donald Trump. And it's like, you know, you called Colin Kaepernick an SOB and you wanted him to lose his job. And he did lose his job. So Colin Kaepernick's been very much in the news this week, to put it mildly. Uh, he also put out a tweet where he said, when civility leads to death, revolting is the only logical reaction. The cries for peace will rain down, and when they do, they will land on deaf ears, because your violence has brought this resistance. We have the right to fight back. Rest in power, George Floyd. And that's not all Colin Kaepernick's done this week. He has also pledged his Know Your Rights campaign to pay for defense lawyers for people being arrested in the protests in the Twin Cities. So it's a lot of Colin Kaepernick for this week, and I think it's terrific that he's stepping up at this moment uh, when we need people to be 10 feet tall and not to cower in the face of what's happening. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Uh, thank you so much to everybody involved in putting this together. Thank you to the producer of this podcast, David Tigaboo. Can I say his name with an amen? Uh, don't, didn't usually get to say David's name, but now I'm going to promote it loudly 
This is David's job. I couldn't say thanks to the producer, David Tigaboo. Now I'm saying it. David Tigaboo, producer of this podcast, kicking ass. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. Please stay safe. Please wear a mask. We are out of here. Peace. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.